You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. isn't as easy to record as it used to be what with this whole isolation thing but sir john golson and i have found a way through the magic of the world wide web the information superhighway all you have to do is understand its magical codes you must speak the language of interconnected tubes and cats yes all it takes that's all it takes it's just it's basically like python is what I'm saying, except it's interconnected tubes and cats. The internet is a series of tubes. Uh, we can't reveal those secrets to just anybody. Sir John Golson and I must protect the integrity of digital noise and our royal property, which is our right to review all the home releases because they're coming out so few and far between right now. Our shows tend to be a little more ranging in terms of release times because we have stuff on here that came out over a month ago and we have stuff that is yet to come out. So that's going to be a thing for the foreseeable future. But with that being said, John, first yes. off, how are you doing? Everything going okay with you? You got any any new announcements? Any comic book stuff? Uh, no, not yet. I'm I I laid out some stuff that I wasn't one hundred percent sure I could draw um, for an upcoming project later in the year. But that's all I can say about that right now. Uh, I have nothing new to announce that people don't already know on this channel, other than I'm I'm going slowly insane like most of the rest of humanity. Right I've got now. my lockdown beard working. I'm kind of uh, cultivating that. Um, I'm weirdly I went the opposite way. Where usually I have like I let my facial hair go for like two weeks before I like trim it a bit. Now I shave every day. I don't know why. Yeah, I think it's just to to create a feeling of normality, however artificial. I also thought that our last show together was actually pretty good, and I it's funny because I think if anybody listening has ever done a podcast, there's the times that you think like, "Oh, that was awful," and you go back and listen to it, and you're like, "That was actually like a really good episode." <laughs> or there's times where you're like, "This was great," and then you listen back and you're like, "That was awful." But uh, but that was one of those times where it's like I wasn't I don't know what my deal was. I was not feeling wholly confident maybe it's because it's the first time we've recorded remotely but then going back and listening to it i was like that's a really good episode between the two of us okay so no pressure chris don't fuck it up is what you're saying we're on a roll all you have to do is talk to me just like last time we know know john's gonna be good it's just is chris gonna drop the ball here no (laughs) chris might drop the ball he makes no promises but uh speaking of the ball like ballrooms i guess Let's go to our first title of the week here, which, by the way, you can click on any of the images of the titles on the actual website on oneofus.net, and that'll bring you to the Amazon page to buy it, and it'll give us a nice little kickback, so do that. But that being said, without the the, the little sales pitch there, our first title is Criterion's re-release of the Grand Budapest Hotel on Blu-ray. Now... Weirdly, when I saw this film, when it first came out, I, well, I was very excited. I'm a big Wes Anderson fan. I I think there's really not a Wes Anderson fan. I don't at least like a lot. 
you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, the the one I like the least, I still like a lot. And I found this was, like, falling into, like, the bottom three or four for me when I saw it. And everyone else in the world was like, you're a crazy person. That's, like, maybe their best film. I don't know what's wrong with you. So I haven't seen this again since then. And I was really looking forward to the chance to. Plus, I mean, Criterion, somebody, clearly somebody at Criterion has a major hard-on for Wes Anderson. It was, I think it was the first Wes Anderson film in a long time that they didn't get the first release on Blu-ray for. I was a little surprised that it, in fact, took this long. But, sure enough, they put out one that's slavishly in love with everything this guy does, including lots of extra physical stuff that comes with it. I was very impressed with the quality of the physical releases that came with it. Lots of uh, neat little... Uh, a neat little booklet with pieces by critics, a double-sided poster, uh, other various ephemera. But as to the movie itself, on the second time, I definitely liked this considerably more. I, I don't know if I was just in a bad mood when I saw it in the theater or something, but I, I really, really liked this strange little movie <laughs> with uh, Ralph Fiennes as the story of Ralph Fiennes, who is a famous concierge. I'm not sure that has ever been a real thing in real life anywhere, but in this universe, it is a famous concierge of the said Grand Budapest Hotel, whose story is being told by F. Murray Abraham, who is the elderly version of Zero, played by, through most of the story, Tony Revolori, who, when when his story, when that story begins, he's a newly hired bellhop who kind of becomes a, a mentee to Ralph Fiennes' character and the adventures that they go on filled with your usual assortment of really incredible actors that just fill up every single Wes Anderson film. I do indeed think this is one of his best now, but John, Mr. Golson, Mr. Sir Golson, what do you think of, of Wes Anderson in general and Grand Budapest Hotel in specific? Um, the only one I'm not... The, the only one that I don't really like is uh, Moonrise Kingdom, and maybe someday I'll watch that and come around on it. But that's the only one that really kind of uh, bounced off me. This one, I think, is a good uh, – presents a really good argument for people who find him um, pretentious because as aesthetically delicate as this film is, you know, he's got all the center, center frame shots and – miniatures and uh, different aspect ratios, depending on who the storyteller is. There's still some like just basic jokes and gags and (laughs) rougher humor. And like, you know, to me, like the content of the movie isn't pretentious at all. Like it's not twee. It's very, there's something very playful and like, uh, I don't know. There's, there's, there's a vibe, there's a playful vibe to it that to me, I just don't see it as being like, uh, I just don't see how people can watch something like this and still level some of the same criticisms against uh, Wes Anderson that you hear when there's when there's sort of, you know, backlash. There's not really backlash. I mean, people love this movie, but you know what I mean, right? You get what I'm saying. Well, no, and I, I've seen people so throw like spit the word twee at Anderson as an epithet as if that by we all have already agreed that's a bad thing yeah you know what I mean like the way conservatives spit liberal Mm -hmm. they spit the word twee and I'm like uh I like twee when the it's done well just like I like almost anything when it's done well there's nothing inherently wrong with twee and I'm sorry Anderson is the master triple underline double exclamation point of twee 
this is less twee than some of his others, but it still ha- reflects some of those s- same conceits, his whole use of models and symmetry. And, you know what I mean? It's, <laughs> uh, there's, there's uh, a director uh, from Czechoslovakia named Karel Zeman. We actually covered one of the Criterion releases recently. They put out a box set of three of his films and a bunch of history of him, who was one of Wes Anderson's biggest like influences. Like he was deeply influenced by this guy. I had never heard of him before fascinating the way the way to watch that and say wow i can see it and when you watch this movie you really see it the oh that's cool models and and stop motion animations and all sorts of stuff with with live action and very clever ways using perspective all of that came from this guy and so so glad i just watched that now watching this again it was perfect timing to see to get a whole new perspective on who anderson is and why he does things the way that he does yeah, I like this movie a lot. I and and I like his body of work and I think it's probably not one of my favorites. I think Tenenbaums is still my favorite cuz I think the balance between yeah. the characters and the the Wes Andersonisms. <laughs> uh, I I like the balance between those two more. I think the character stuff is really deep and resonates more than something like Grand Budapest which feels like a filmmaker having a lot of fun. Kind of in the same way that when the Coen brothers do like a really wacky comedy. This is sort of like the Wes Anderson wacky comedy, uh, you know, that, that you see, like the Coens will occasionally do like an O Brother or something like that. And to me, this sort of has that, you know, that's where it sort of fits into to the, uh, to the overall yeah. body of work. Because Gustav is got that sort of absurd protagonist that we see in films like Raising Arizona, for instance, mm-hmm. is a good example. You know, this a totally absurd, very affectation oriented protagonist with just a perpetual sense of motion that runs through the whole film as if we're watching someone flip through chapters of a story rather quickly just excising parts they're not interesting in in, and just slip flipping to the next part uh there's definitely a comparison to be made there and certainly in terms of them doing comedies what a great cast, though. I was only sad we didn't get more Tilda Swinton, but I'm always sad when we don't get enough Tilda Swinton. Yeah, and just to talk about the audio video, video quality real quick, I um, did not do a side-by-side comparison of the existing Blu-ray. I own it digitally, um, but I did... It's, I, it's, the, it's the same, apparently. Okay. I did think yeah. that the transfer was, like, it's an impeccable-looking Blu-ray. Like, it looks... Yeah. It's about as close to something being in 4K that's to something that's not 4K that I've ever seen. Uh, it's a fantastic looking, flawless looking uh, Blu-ray, um, and I dug it's, it's, I dug into the features a little bit too. And and you know, Criterion always brings it with the features, and they they do the same here. Yes, uh, say it's sourced by a 2K master that was supplied by Wes Anderson and supervised by him. The transfer. Uh, this is that original same version as far as the movie itself. The audio being the the one standard audio track, which is a DTS HD master audio 5.1. There are all the old extras of which there was a decent amount here, and a whole bunch of new ones here. And they're kind of it's. I am unclear what was old and what was new because I did not own the previous one, but I will say that what is here is more than enough to keep you very happy and watching it. There's tons of stuff. I do know the audio commentary is brand new, recorded by Wes Anderson, uh, co-writer Roman Coppola, Jeff Goldblum, and critic Kent Jones. So that's, and then of course the, the booklets alone are just like the stuff that comes with the packaging is a collector's item for Anderson fanatics to be treasured. 
Yeah. Uh, but let's go on to our next one, which is also a Criterion release. See, like I said, there's been like, there's a bit of a gap between stuff coming out. But this was uh, Spike Lee's 2000 very controversial film, Bamboozled. I remember seeing this and really liking it when it came out and then getting into all kinds of arguments with people who either loved it a lot more than I did, but I thought maybe for the wrong reasons or people who really hated it. And I thought also for the wrong reasons, you know, I kind of remembered it. I don't, I remembered it confusedly. How do I feel about this? And this is a surprising one to be put out on Blu-ray because almost all of it is filmed at a VHS level of quality I mean, very intentionally, it's very, very, very lo-fi the way it's put together. It was shot on a mini DV digital video using a Sony VX1000 camera, then later converted to film format. But that also kept the budget under $10 million. It allowed them to use a bunch of multiple cameras at the same time. And Spike Lee's always had a battle for a long time to even get his films made at all. And especially when you look at the plot of this one, you're like, okay, basically this is the producer's the old Mel Brooks film, except from an African-American point of view with a guy, Pierre Delacroix, who is played by Damon Wayans. And one of the few, I mean, it's a comedic role, but he's trying to, it's a comedic role that should, that's supposed to have dramatic elements to it. But he's a very uptight, Harvard educated guy who works at a tele, major television network. Everyone is a piece of shit he works with who white guys, bosses who, who use the N word because they think they makes them sound cool, that sort of thing. And he basically develops a modern minstrel show that's designed to be wildly offensive, but with black actors in blackface making racist jokes and puns because to some degree he wants to get fired much to his shock. The show is a monster success uh, where people love it. It's critically acclaimed despite a lot of controversy. And he finds himself in the middle of being split between his own ego and what he knows is actually the right thing to do. Featuring a cast with other people like Jada Pinkett Smith, Tommy Davidson, Michael Rappaport, most deaf Paul Mooney and the roots playing the Alabama Porch Monkeys. You have to see the movie. You can't be mad at me for saying that. It says it right here on Wikipedia. This is a movie that's going to inspire conversation and difficult ones at that. And Criterion's not known for shying away from that sort of thing, certainly. But that doesn't change the fact that I thought this was an odd choice for them to release. I had been wanting to see this movie for a while. Um, and out of everything that you handed over for the show, it was probably the one that I had been anticipating the most. Um... I don't know how equipped I am to talk about the themes and, and kind of looking around online, it did, it felt like, um, Oh, it felt like there were a lot of, there were a lot of critics that were white critics that were more than happy to try to address, uh, the themes, um, which I thought was foolhardy, um, because it's not their history. Um, I mean, much like Black Klansman, the film ends with a montage of real-world depictions that underline the themes of the film. And, I mean, and we're watching the James Bond movies right now, and this this will tie together, I promise. (laughs) All of the James Bond movies open with the MGM logo, and every MGM logo up until a few years ago has Al Jolson in blackface right below the lion. And that lasted decades. Like... That was part of every MGM movie opened with that blackface logo. 
Um, now it's gold and it looks like a drama mask, but the roots of it were, I mean, very clearly, if you look at any movie, probably before the mid nineties, it's, it's clearly a stylized picture of Al Jolson at the bottom of the MGM logo. And so those things are still evident. Those, those it's the difficulty of a film like this is that when you're talking about 20 years ago that this film was made and the progress has been incremental um, and really only in the past couple of years has it even felt incremental. Um, the movie still stands. I also think that it's kind of, there's, you know, people talk about things being punk rock and this, there was something about this movie an energy or a vibe. Maybe it was the fact that it was shot on video and it was so acerbic that there was something about this, that the whole endeavor that I found very punk when people talk yeah. about things being punk. And I was like, this is kind of punk. Like this whole thing is kind of punk. It's made to make you think and piss you off and it's made on the cheap and it's not perfect, but it's, no. it, it is designed for a purpose and it's a piece of art. It is a, it is an inexpensive piece of art made to inflame you. And in that sense, I was like, this is a very punk movie. Um, yeah, it definitely is inflaming. It's a nonstop barrage of incredibly offensive racist imagery that is that's there specifically to upset you. My question to Spike Lee would be, if I ever got the chance to talk to him about this film, is how intentional is the ending? Is the ending meta in that violence starts happening amongst the black cast? Like we've been following these characters and the film itself gets increasingly violent. Does it get increasingly violent as a meta commentary from what audiences expect to see their black characters do? Or is it not, am I overthinking it? Is it just simply that's mm. where he took the story or, or am I, or am I having to face the fact that like, Oh, there there's shootings that happen at the end. And there's like things like that, that you expect quote unquote from a movie with an all black cast. I don't know how meta it is. I can't tell how I mean, intentionally meta it is. Unfortunately, one of the extras here with the criterion one, uh, the, one of the new ones is the interview with Spike Lee for 25 minutes. Conducted by film programmer and critic Ashley Clark, who also wrote the essay in the leaflet. And he's very, he dodges all the serious questions. It's a very fun interview to watch, but he definitely dodges around making any serious answers to questions like that, which are indeed addressed. And I think that's a shame because it's the sort of film that if you're unafraid to make it, you should be unafraid to talk about it. Mm. And it feels that way. Like he made it and then doesn't want to get dig too deep. I get it. I mean, maybe it's possible you didn't even have all the answers yourself. Maybe it's possible to some level you made it because you wanted somebody, you're raising your hand, hey, pay attention to me. I'll make something that they can't ignore. Maybe yeah. that's part of what was going on. I don't honestly know, but it is definitely one hell of a, as you said, punk rock conversation piece of film that is very funny at points and at other points is going to make you feel more deeply uncomfortable than anything else you're probably going to see all year. Damon Wayans acting is kind of, um, <laughs> I, it's almost like he's being told something completely different from the rest of the cast. His acting yeah. is like, and, and I, I think Damon Wayans is talented. His acting is very much like he's in a sketch, except yes. it's a two hour movie. And I'm like, that, what is happening is here? The only other performances that are exaggerated in that way are the performances of actors playing characters that are supposed to be exaggerated in the context of the film. When anybody else is playing a regular, or supposed to be a real person, they're playing them like a real person. Yeah. Damon Wayans is playing him, like you said, he might as well be on Living Color. He's playing this hyper-exaggerated version. It's like he's doing an impression of a white guy. Yeah, it's very strange. 
yeah, I, I don't understand what was going on there. And it's annoying, quite frankly, to watch the whole movie because he's in it more than any other character. Like I said, this is far from a perfect film, but I definitely think it's worth a look. Uh, the bulk of the supplementary material here are come from New Line Cinema's original Platinum Series DVD, which has been out of print forever, which include an audio commentary by Lee, the documentary The Making of Bamboozled, which is about an hour, 19 deleted scenes, uh, music videos by Mau Mau and Gerard Levert, alternate parody commercials made for the film, like 20 minutes of them, an animated gallery of poster art, as well as the original theatrical trailer, as well as the interview with Spike Lee that I already mentioned for new stuff. There's an interview with Savion Glover and Tommy Davidson, which look into their history and how they got involved with Spike Lee, their memories of the film. There's a new interview with a costume designer for the film, and then a video essay, which I think is the best thing here, called On Blackface and the Minstrel Show by a film and media scholar, Ra Ra uh, Raquel Gates, who tries to give a, a better look at understanding the images that you are indeed shot, at, shot with out of a spread cannon at the end of this film. <laughs> you know, just there's just a huge bulk of them just thrown at you, and you're like... I can understand people being confused. Like, what am I looking at here? If you want to know, well, there it is. Yeah. Let's go to our next one, which is the spinoff to The Big Lebowski. Yeah, that you heard right. <laughs> That's a thing. Yes. <laughs> the the non-approved by, but also not condemned by, the Cohen brothers. John Turturro decided that his character of Jesus from The Big Lebowski, you know, the the the... the the guy who's licks his bowling ball and that John Goodman is convinced is a uh, pedophile. He decided that character was so interesting. He had to have his own movie, mm -hmm. which it is a very odd idea, but weirdly this has less in common with the big Lebowski than it does with what it's it actually a remake of a 1974 French film called going places by Bertrand Blier, which is relatively close to the story, which is a, a trio of, sex obsessed weirdos who go on a road trip together <laughs> said weirdos here john Turturro as jesus bobby Cannavale as his buddy Petey, and audrey tattoo as uh old friend who they both regularly have sex with but continue to remind each other that no one has any set bonds on each other this is a weird movie that doesn't feel a thing like the big lebowski i don't think it's supposed to at some points it's absurdly bigger than life than the way that is but other than that i can't really think of a way i'd compare it it certainly does the smart thing of getting out of the way real quick yeah john goodman was totally wrong about that whole pedophile thing like because <laughs> otherwise who would want to watch this movie and it certainly isn't the only thing john goodman is totally wrong about in the big lebowski so it's not hard to buy that he misheard something or misunderstood. But the upshot is, yes, he's not. He may be kind of a, a sex weirdo, but he is not a pedophile. I did not like this movie. <laughs> I did not like this movie. I thought this was a huge waste of a talented cast. You know what? It, it kind of made me think of these. Universal is really bad about these uh, rights holding direct-to-video sequels like Kindergarten Cop 2 or I think they're probably on the fourth or fifth shooter movie by now. That's Paramount, though. Um, but yeah. like these these DTV um, sequels to movies that were released theatrically, and to me, that's almost what Jesus Rolls plays like is sort of the you know American Pie six to Big Lebowski. It's <laughs> except the cast is really good. Uh, even if you're going to remove it though from the Big Lebowski, if you're going to treat it on its own terms. 
I still think the movie is kind of cheap and crass. Um, just uh, like always kind of reaching for this brass ring of charm that it never really grabs hold of. And instead it's just kind of, it's just kind of crass. I found it sort of gross and unpleasant, even though it is very like amiable and cheeky. And isn't this just, you know, the cheekiest and aren't, aren't we <laughs> rascals? And I, but this movie just, it was, it was, it, it angered me. This movie made me mad. Wow. I couldn't believe the people. I couldn't believe the people that were recruited to be in something that was such a dump. Well, he, okay. Totoro is well-loved. He is. First off in the industry. And he has a lot of, he has a lot of juice. He, and he was the one who really wanted to get this made. He wrote it and he directed it. So mm-hmm. I'm not that surprised to see he could get the cast that he wanted to. And there's a lot of big names here. Pete Davidson, John Hamm, Susan Sarandon, Sonia Braga, Christopher Walken, J.B. Smoove, Tim Blake Nelson, Nicholas Reyes, Gloria Rubin. I mean, it's a, it's a big cast and it is very typical of a road movie in that it's the three main characters going through an assortment of short bits with encountering these other characters. And then the movie moves on to whoever the next character is. That's going to be part of the story. And there is no real story. It's just a road trip movie. I'll honestly say most road trip movies don't have much of a story. It's a collection of set pieces. This is no different in that way. They're not. The problem is John Turturro essentially is they're playing him like a guy who's almost got like a, a cult leader personality and you never understand why anyone would fall behind this guy, much less be attracted to him. He's gross. Like, and I don't mean because of the accusations of pedophilia by John Goodman. He's just gross. <laughs> he's un- unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> like he's funny as a caricature. What a great side character. But this proves the dangers of trying to expand a side character in a comedy to a full thing. I mean, there's only so many Rosencrantz and Guildensterns out there and, and Jesus Quintana is not one of them. I did enjoy this more than you did. That being said, I found there were a lot of weird little surprises here, but nothing really ever ties together. This is as forgettable as it is watchable. I just thought it was okay. But there's only a commentary here by Totoro and Kana Valley. There's not, I did not listen to it, so I cannot speak to that. I'm sure John went back and rewatched the whole film. I I four (laughs) times just to make sure I could talk about it correctly. No, I, uh, it was, you know, it's one of those where it was like 20 minutes in and I was like, oh no, this is not going to get any better. Like, this is just (laughs) not going to happen for me, is it? And then it never really did. Although I kind of liked the uptick of, if if there's any part where I kind of sat up, I did think that throwing Pete Davidson into the middle of the, of the two of them and how they have like how Cannaval and and Totoro have like a weird sort of sexual partnership. It's not yeah. a rivalry. It's sort of this weird, and they hint that they may even be bisexual. Um, but they also hint as much that. Well, that at least kind of Valley isn't. Yeah. But they always sleep naked in the same bed together. Well, there's so that one part where confusing. they're cradling each other. Like, yeah. they're like holding each other in bed. But anyways, when they, added Pete Dave- <laughs> when they added Pete Davidson to the mix, literally in the last 15 minutes of the movie, I was like, this is kind of interesting. And then it ended. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a big old no on Jesus Rolls for me. Well, next up is the 30 Rock box set, the complete collection of all of the seasons of the show that originally ran from 2006 to 2013, created by Tina Fey, 
uh, that originally aired on NBC based on her experiences being the head writer for Saturday Night Live and a very loosely, you know, I mean, the show and the side of the show, you're like, okay, clearly that's supposed to be a take on Saturday Night Live. Had an amazing cast of people, although when I think of this film, I think of Alec Baldwin and I think of Tina Fey, who yeah. to me are the two biggest standouts of the show. This is definitely a show that had its ups and downs. I thought it started a little wobbly, but found its feet pretty quickly. I thought it had ups and downs as it went, but it went out very strong. Certainly not a show that there's any single season that you could just write off. On the downside, it's very topical. We were rewatching a lot of this and there are jokes. I'm like, I have no idea what that joke was about because it was like five years ago and I don't know the reference anymore. That's okay. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Same thing's true watching Saturday Night Live, I suppose. But it was very, very funny. And weirdly, the first time it's been on Blu-ray. These were all issued on DVD, one season at a time originally, with lots of bonus features, like lots of them. But it was a really compressed release. The DVDs did not look great. Surprisingly, Wellgo spent some money and fixed this up. So it's a the best looking version of the show that you can get. And out of the normality for Wellgo, they put in all of the bonus features that were on all the DVDs. And there's, like I said, a lot, including audio commentaries by various and sundry, including, weirdly enough, one with Donald Glover and and Jillian Jacob doing a commentary for, on season four because they were both writers on the show. Oh, interesting. Yeah, before they, this is well before Community, of course. Tons of deleted scenes and uh, featurettes. This is actually a really solid little package, surprisingly. But I don't know how, did, were you a 30 Rock fan? You know, I, I wasn't when it aired. Um, I watched a little bit of season one back when it was on. And then kind of, and I thought it was fine, pretty good. And I kind of put it aside. And it became my... Um, my sitcom that I would watch when I would clean my apartment <laughs> um, <laughs> later on, like actually just a few years ago. Uh, so if I was, if it was doing chores or sweeping or mopping or doing dishes or whatever, then I, then I was putting 30 rock on Netflix and watching 30 rock. And it's interesting how different the first season is. I think adding Donahue, uh, Alec Baldwin's character to the cast really solidifies what the identity of the show is because the first season it leans so heavily on um oh what's the actor's name her it's it's more about lemon and the guy the bald oh guy. tracy morgan no not tracy morgan the bald the other writer guy the, oh yeah, yeah yeah um good lord why can't i remember and he name? takes he such a back seat in later seasons like he's there are whole episodes that pass where he's barely in there scott scott adds it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, who had had a lot of experience with comedy at this point. Mm -hmm. So it was understandable. They sort of had moved him towards the front. He had been a lot of major sketch shows and okay, this seemed like a, but you're right. There's whole episodes. He's not even in as yeah. the show goes on. And, and he's, and he's definitely one of the main players in the first season. Anyways. Um, yeah, I like this show. Um, you know, I think that, I think that um, Tina Fey has, a, she on that show, I think established a lot of Tina Fey isms for better or worse. Some of them for better, I think self-deprecation being like one of her strong suits. I think um, her pop culture references are also a strong suit. I think yeah. she gets weird with race in a way that she doesn't get called out on nearly enough. Um, and that's, that's also <laughs> continued into her work. Um, well, that's, I, I will say that part of it is something we notice right off the bat. Like, you know, you watch things only a few years old right now and you go, wow, that didn't age well. There's some of the first two first two seasons of this where you're like eek yeah. <laughs> jokes you're like I see what you were getting at but uh. um, 
But then as the show goes on, it becomes more like she'll say something that's like, or do something that's uncomfortable, but then the show acknowledges that's her being so, so a stupid white person and that was a mistake, which is in and of itself, I think, the right way. It's like teaching you, no, you can't do this. Don't be like Tina Fey's character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I like this show and I would I would probably watch it again. I, You know, I don't think people... There's a lot of things people binge. They watch Good Place and Office and uh, and um, Parks, and, Parks Rec and Rec over and over and over. That's what I'm doing right yeah. now. It's the full binge of Parks and Rec. And I and I feel like I would. I'll probably in a couple of years go back and and do Thirty Rock all over again. It is at at its best. It's geniusly absurd. The live episode, which there's two, because they did two episodes, one for each coast, so it would be live at the same time. Is bizarre and wonderful. Now, one of them is slightly better than the other. I forget which one I want to say. We just rewatched them the other day, but I don't remember which one we watched. I want to say it was the West Coast one. It's so great where they go. It's sort of a like they flash back to the yesteryears of live television and, and you know, doing parodies with the honeymooners and stuff with the cast. And it's incredible, like worth pulling out of the set all by itself. There's so many great guest stars. Who, I mean, they're just like a who's who of famous people show up on this show. Like like an a, enormous amount of famous actors came on for like one to five episode arcs, sometimes spread across <laughs> multiple things. And some of these are on here for a whole season or two. It's it's constantly a surprise. I think it's really, with the exception of a few episodes, I think it gen, gen, generally gets better as it goes along. Although my favorite single line in this entire show is in the first season where Liz says to Jack, why are you wearing a tuxedo? He goes, it's after six. What am I, a farmer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still never going to not love that line. In some ways, it's funny. The more I watch, the more I start seeing, because I'm watching Parks and Rec at the same time, the comparisons between these two shows that were happening, not exactly at the same time, but there was a lot of overlap mm-hmm. that like both of them are sort of strong female character, but who's flawed, but good at making things happen whose boss is a very conservative, but with a sort of sense of wisdom and real affection for the female character. I was like, well, I'm kind of seeing how these two shows came out at the same time here. But in fact, there's a, there's one of the episodes where um, Amy Poehler appears as a, a young Tina Fey. And there's a specific call out to her being on Parks and Rec and that you should watch it. But yeah, this is a lovely little show. And I think everybody should, if you haven't checked it out and this is the way to get it. Well, goes stuff is super cheap. They put out stuff for real cheap. And this is a, this is a great deal for a box set for one of the best TV shows of the last decade. Uh, so I guess we'll move to the next one, which is, are you supposed to say IP man or IP man? Ip. It's IP man, right? IP man. That just seems weird. Cause like IP, like intellectual, intellectual property, property man. man. <laughs> That's kind of you. His parents you were, do, right? his parents were killed by copyright lawyers and <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> this is the fourth one of the Donnie Yen series of IP man films. I've only seen the first one. Okay, the first two are both great. Okay. Uh, some argue the second one's even better than the first one. I've heard it argued both ways. They're both fantastic. The third one is still pretty good, but it's a dip down. It's certainly a lot slower and goofier. And four is probably at the same level, this new one, as the third one. This is called The Finale. And it is about the true question mark story. No of it, yeah, Well, apparently this story is told in China as if it's true mm. and it's told in San Francisco as if it's true, but there's no evidence that it actually happened. Okay. That Ip Man 
what we know for sure, his student was Bruce Lee. Like he trained yes. Bruce Lee and all that stuff. He approved openly of Bruce Lee teaching non-Chinese students Kung Fu, which was a big controversial deal and has led to lots of uh, conspiracy theories about Bruce Lee's death. But we don't know that it man, in fact, came to San Francisco to visit him. This is based on said maybe fictional, maybe true story. In fact, we really don't know anything about what's true. They could have made this. I saw one critic say they could have made this where he goes to space and fights aliens and said based on a true story. And there would have been about as much evidence that it actually happened that way. And this is kind of goofy feeling. I mean, it's he goes there. He gets involved with lots of like this the racism against Chinese people on multiple different levels, including very oddly by a United States Marine Corps uh, gunnery sergeant played by the incredible Scott Atkins, who I wish they would start giving more hero roles to because they keep casting him as villains. And he's so charming when he plays a good guy and also one of the best martial artists working today. Anyway, who is really racist against Chinese people, but loves karate and Japanese people. And that was weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just for the time. Yeah, period. it's it's got this thing where it's like there's there's Master Ip teaches Wing Chun and Bruce Lee is bringing it to the Western world and the yeah. old masters are pissed off about it. Yeah. And the military is kind of interested in training people with it, but not really. And it's it's sort of like they want all the fighting, but they don't want to deal with any of the Chinese people. It's very yeah. odd. And the and maybe the broad strokes of the story are true, but I was seeing that martial arts weren't actually implemented as part of United States Marine Corps training until 2001. So mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily feel like you could draw a direct line from the events of the movie to, uh, <laughs> to real life. That's a pretty big gap. Um I I thought the American acting was pretty rough. Uh, It always is. (laughs) And and the movie was... I don't remember Ip Man 1 as feeling corny. And this felt a little corny to me. It's it's very corny. Yeah. I remember Ip Man 1 feeling like much... uh, Like like high stakes human drama that also had incredible fight scenes. Um, Yeah. And and it playing like... Almost like... uh, in my mind, in my memory, and and I could be wrong because it's been a decade since I've seen it probably, but um, in my memory, it was almost like the quality of like an Oscar bait film, but also had like these these martial arts sequences. And this just yeah. felt cheap and, and corny, but it's fine. Like, it's, it's fine if you like watching, you know, if you like watching Dunny in work, it's, it's fine. It's nothing, not, nothing not to say that's good about that, except that while you're dealing with the same character and Donnie Yen playing him, it's so much more remarkable, the the fighting that takes place in the first two. Yeah. Than this. And the idea is if you do sequels, they should be, of action films, they should be bigger and better and more impressive fights. And this is not. It's still better than your average martial arts film. Donnie Yen is, a, is amazing. Scott Atkins is amazing. So there's a lot of good stuff in here on that level, but the plot is absurd and 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 doofy. And like I said, Atkins, who I know can do better, is being told like every, almost every white white actor performance in any Chinese film I've ever seen, being told to be the villain to play it a hundred billion times over the top, and that he's playing it so over the top, it's it's surreal, you know. <laughs> like come on, yeah, <laughs> points. 
I, it's a shame because there's a better movie inside this movie that we're never going to get get to see. Uh, I would recommend if you're really into Ip Man films, rather than watch this, go watch the more the very recent Master Z, the Ip Man Legacy, which came out a few months ago, which is terrific and features a fight between the actor, the the main actor in that, who was one of Ip Man's. A guy who competed with Ip Man is basically a spinoff of the Ip Man film, this Ip Man series. But he fights, um, good Lord, what's his name? Giant wrestler guy who's in Guardians of the Galaxy. Dave Bautista? Yeah, he fights Dave Bautista in an amazing fight scene at the end of that. Just really great. Or if you want a more serious arty one, but that still has great fights, the Grandmaster, which, which is absolutely tremendous and wonderful, but a little more slow moving. Like I said, that's a little more arty. That came out several years ago. But this is just okay. It's it's fine. It'll do. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not crazy about it. Yeah, it's okay. Weirdly, they put this out on 4K, which I would which is not what I would expect, but Wellgo, which put this out as more and more moving into 4K stuff, which sometimes is totally worth it like with Shadow, they put that out in 4K and I was that's a must have that way. And others with this where you're like, okay, I guess maybe if I wanted to make sure all my movies were now of, of that high an upgrade. But let's move on to the country of France and the nineteen seventy nine film Cire Noir, which is a crime film directed by Alain Corneau, which was entered to the Cannes Film Festival and is based on a novel by one of my favorite crime writers, Jim Thompson called A Hell of a Woman. I actually have not actually read that particular book by him, but Jim Thompson, great writer, a lot of great movies based on his works. The Grifters comes to mind as one of the all-time classics. This stars Patrick DeWayer, who I believe, much like the female lead in here, died uncomfortably young in real life. He's a door-to-door salesman. Uh, he's married, but his wife leaves him for largely... I mean, first off, she's, she's no prize chicken herself, but she's kind of a hoarder, but she leaves him because he's got anger problems and won't do anything to help her at all. Uh, he meets this underage prostitute, Mona played by Marie Trintagnant. I don't know if I'm saying that right or not, <laughs> who is a who is the niece of this older woman who basically whores her out for whatever she uh, can yeah. get. She's a sex but slave. He, yeah. But then he feels bad and doesn't want to actually have sex with her. He's deeply attracted to her. But she's underage, and he's like, yeah, what do I do here? Plus, technically, I'm still married. <laughs> uh, he ends up in a plot to rob her rich aunt, and he's got an accomplice played by uh, Andreas Katsulis, which was interesting to me. I recognize him right off the bat because he played one of the main characters on Babylon 5, Ambassador Jakar. If you were a fan of that show like me, you'd be like, oh, my God, it's that guy. This is definitely a noir film that's experimenting with that idea of how obnoxious can we make this main character before you stop caring? And this toes that line in a way that succeeds, I felt. I think it's a it's an interesting little film. These are the energy put into the lead actor and playing this character, Pupar, is impressive. It's strong. His game is very strong. The story is depressing and noirish, but they play it with a sort of odd pop sensibility and light humor that makes it eminently watchable that by the end I was like as I'm watching it I don't know how I'm feeling about it and it's over I'm like that was pretty good I'd watch that again yeah it's interesting the plotting is 100% noir which is oh you meet a, a sexy prostitute who kind of steers you into a life of crime and it's like it's very the, the plotting of it all the specifics of the plot everything that happens in the movie is very traditional noir 
the movie itself is sort of um, post French New Wave, very lived in and shabby and like very relaxed. So that the the two things you that you wouldn't think go together, which is kind of like the French version of almost like they're kind of like French white trash sort of yeah. like mixing yeah. with the standard almost like textbooks uh, uh, pulp tropes. And you have this performance too. That's the, the closest thing I can think of are like the stuff when Nicholas Cage goes really wild. Yeah. He's, he's such a spaz. He's constantly <laughs> like, uh, like muttering. The film opens with him like act like he's he's fighting no one in a parking lot like he's yep. he's he's practicing this grand fight scene in his head um and there's a lot of that where he's just sort of either singing to himself or muttering to himself he, it's a very manic performance that is um consistently all over the place uh if you, yeah. if you i've met people like this you know people like this and it's like oh yeah um it feels very real and it's not a character you're used to seeing in a noir type situation. Uh, this is, this is really good. And I have a feeling like this might be a movie that in a couple of years, I'm going to want to watch again and come back to. And I wouldn't be surprised if I like it even more when I revisit it. It feels Agreed. like the kind of movie that would grow upon revisits. It was, yeah. uh, it was, it was a really, it was a really interesting. It always kept my attention, um, yeah. and it didn't feel. I think, I think all of the ingredients again that that noir plot, that French New Wave approach. I think it, they all made it feel incredibly unique. Yeah, you're right. And it does have that French New Wave thing going on in it uh, very strongly in the filmmaking style. And yet, because of the way the performances are, it doesn't fit neatly into that category no. any more than it does into noir. <laughs> it is its own weird fucking thing. I've never actually seen anything quite like it. I don't know what I, I don't I don't even know how to categorize it, per se, because if I was if someone was like, what are the great European noir films? Would I put this on that list? Because it doesn't really feel like a noir film, despite, as you said, strictly speaking, the text is a classic noir situation, but it doesn't feel noir. It doesn't, it's got all the trademarks of a goofy French comedy, but it's not a goofy French comedy. It's got the, the, the spareness and the, uh, the real locations and the lack of lighting of of, of the use of natural lighting and the amateur actors that go with a lot of the French new wave, but no one would look at this and think it was a French new wave film. Right. I don't know. I don't know, John, but I will say this comes with a featurette called Siri Noir, the darkness of the soul. There's an interview with the director and actress Marie Trintignant, who's once again, not sure I'm saying her name right. That must be a very, I did not watch it. It must be very old because she's been dead for quite some time. And there's an illustrated booklet featuring a new essay by film critic and writer Nick Pinkerton from the Nick Pinkerton Film Critic Detective Agency. Anyway, let's move on to our next title, which is Better Days. We are going crossing back over the ocean again. We should have just put them back to back here. I don't know what I was thinking. For To China, this is a new Chinese romantic crime coming of age film directed by Derek Zhang, starring Zhao Dongyu and Jackson Yi, which I know we don't know who they are. But if you're in China, you'd be like, oh, they're big. 
They are big. They're they're pop stars. They're actors. People know who they are there. We just don't hear. Based on a popular YA novel in China called In His Beauty, In Her Beauty. And apparently that 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 novel is loosely based on real events. Yes, that is so I hear. But it is the story of a bullied high school girl who ends up becoming friends after a friend of hers commits suicide because she's being heavily bullied. Bullying is apparently a deeply serious problem in both China and Japan, from what I hear, from everything I've read. Like, really serious. Like, people hospitalized on on the reg because of how bad it is. But she becomes friends with this teenage street thug whose life is fucked up himself. He's no, like, he is not, like, the king of the hill of his thugdom, to be sure. But neither is he at the bottom they find a weird sort of connection together and become friends. And this is a very long film, certainly. And it is, it's 135 minutes and it is about with fervently about how bad bullying is in China. And I think that it's so much better than that sounds. Yeah. The film opens with the, um, with the, with the suicide of a character and our and our main character talks to the police about uh, what she believes may be the cause of the suicide. She's already being bullied, and it just puts a target on her from the bullies that were already giving her problems. The film is sort of just a constant web of uh, of like the unpleasant complications that come with telling on bullies. Um, it's yeah. not just as cut and dry as like, oh, people are mean. Now I can go talk to somebody and have that problem taken care of. And the movie finds a way to kind of present that web in different and new ways through its running time. So everything sort of comes from that center point of of the opening scene there's not a lot more to the movie other than just uh, dealing with bullies. There is the relationship part of it as well. But again, that's driven, that's driven in large part by that first scene. Um, It's also very much focused on trying to establish how incredibly rigorous the college entrance exams are in China and how serious and big a deal it is. How everyone takes it just like, I mean, if you, if for whatever reason you aren't allowed to take it, you might as well commit suicide. Is the way the movie treats the, that their culture acts about it. They, there's a short window of time, and then I think that window closes, and then it has to happen all over again. Is the way yeah. I think it works. Um, so there's also certain decisions that the character makes that may seem, I, you know, when you're when you're young, you do things because you sometimes you just don't know, and you're like, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to. I'm not going to do this. And, and as a viewer, you can get a little frustrated and go like, well, why doesn't she just blah, blah, blah. But it's like, she's got a whole mess of other problems. Her mother is a con artist. Um, Kind of a light, she's like a light grifter. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) She, she's, she sells, um, she sells uh, cosmetic products that don't work. Uh, Yeah. Knockoff items. Yeah. It's, it's an incredibly sad movie. Um, it's, it's one of those movies. It's like, it's unpleasant, but it's really, really good. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I I couldn't help but think there's a lot of times where people talk about stuff where they say, I would never watch that again. Like it was great, but I'll never watch that again. And sometimes they'll say that about movies that are like some of my favorite movies. 
Oh, uh, it's, yeah. it's really good, but I'll, ne- I'll never watch it again. And it's like, this is the first one I think that I've seen where I'm like, this is really, really good, but I don't know that I would ever be in the mood to revisit Better <laughs> Days. It's tricky. It's really, it's, it's deep and sticky and tricky and dark. Um, emotionally yeah, upsetting. Uh, emotionally um, upsetting, emotionally draining. Um, and, and as we said, very long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But worth it. It's worth watching. It's, it is, yeah. it is really, really good. And I think in some ways handles bullying better than a lot of movies that I've seen because it's, it, it, it is very, it's complicated and the movie's complicated and it presents, it presents the relationships between bullies and those who pick on them and law and the school it shows how complicated those relationships are and how they all have a push and pull and how they all affect each other. And I don't think I've ever seen a movie about bullying that has conveyed that as clearly as uh, Better Days does. That said... Yeah, I think this is, hey. the de- this is the definitive movie on bullying. If you're looking for the most inclusive, looking at it from as multiple angles, as many angles as you can... I think it's unfortunately there's a little bit of a weird twist that it plays with as it gets into a little bit of thriller aspects in the third act. I mean, I get it. There's a point your audience is going to get tired. You better ramp this up. Yeah. And it's not terrible. It's not even silly. It's just un- felt a little unnecessary to even do that. But it doesn't on the long term in the bigger picture it doesn't hurt this film. I do think this is exceptional. I agree with you. I don't know when or if, unless I had a kid that was being bullied, yeah. I don't know when I would watch this again, but I would re- wholeheartedly recommend this to anybody to see because it really is, although an emotional investment, it is well worth your time. Well, let's move on to the nines. This is one of those movies that's been on my, why haven't I seen that list for a very long time? A, because I like Ryan Reynolds and I've always liked Ryan Reynolds, but, and this sounded like one of the ones that was up my alley. It's like a crazy sci-fi psychological thriller film that on the whole got decent reviews. It's got other actors I really like, like Hope Davis, Melissa McCarthy and Ellie Fanning. But I really had no idea at all what this was about like not even a little bit and i didn't even read the back cover of this because i'm like look i've heard enough to know that maybe this is gonna be my type of thing and the type of film the less you know about going in the better which is why i don't want to get too deep into the plot i will say it's kind of broken into three chapters of three different stories that are about three different men all played by ryan reynolds that all tie together into one story and it's kind of hard to discuss those separate chapters without being anything like a spoiler. But this is one of those films that is about what is real, what is not. It definitely gets into science fiction uh, in, in a almost Donnie Darko-ish sort of way, but never as dark as that. When it starts, Ryan Reynolds is playing a, a has-been action star named Gary. He's under house arrest after he went a little crazy with drinking and drugs and uh, totaled his car in a, a very funny scene. Yes, I know that doesn't sound like it should be funny, but it is funny in the context. He can't leave the house or invite anyone over. Uh, Melissa McCarthy plays a public relations guru who's, who's trying to help him make sure he doesn't fuck up and he can get this taken care of and then get back to making movies or, or uh, again uh his next door neighbor Hope Davis is a horny single mom who keeps basically playing a push me pull you with him about them hanging out and fooling around with each other 
And then there's all this weird stuff going on where apparently Melissa McCarthy and Hope Davis are having these weird sort of quiet spats about Gary. And there's strange things like the word knowing keeps popping up in weird places. And the number nine, like the title, keeps appearing all over the place much more than any sort of statistical level would show that it would. Yes, this goes to very odd places. When you watch the first act of this film, you'd think, okay, maybe this isn't a science fiction film, but it it's about maybe 30 minutes in, 35 minutes, that it becomes decidedly a science fiction film. Yes, it does. I think that this is a noble writing experiment. It felt like something that the screenwriter had an idea that he was like, I'm going to, this might be interesting, and I'm going to execute upon this idea. I don't think it makes a great movie. Um I, I think the problem with that, and I thought about this a lot because I like this writer, John mm-hmm. August. He's written a lot of movies that I really like, like Go, yeah. which I think is a perfect movie. I love Go. I love Go. Um, Big Fish, which is one of my favorite Tim Burton films. I I like this guy, and he's had a lot of successes in his career, and this is the only movie he ever directed. That in and of itself tells you something. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little dramatically inert. I don't think that what he's trying to do and the structure that he's trying to use to tell this particular story is good for a film. It might have been better as a, <laughs> and not not to it's you can't put you can't go back in time, but it might have been better as a short story or a, or a novel. The structure yeah. doesn't work as a movie because there's no. Um, you kind of just have your reveal. You kind of just have, all right, what's going on? And that's the only thing that really provides any great amount of dramatic tension because the character stuff is shifting so often that you can't get a handle on it to be able to follow the personal stakes for the characters. And because of that, you're just waiting. You're just kind of biding your time for, okay, what's going on? And that reveal better be like a home run. And to me, it's not a home run. It's just something semi-interesting. And then it's sort of like, well, uh, then when you get to that point, it's, it's, you've, you've, (laughs) you've used all that time sitting there watching, watching the movie. I, I just feel like, I feel like there's, it's inert. It's just, it doesn't. It doesn't connect. It doesn't move. You Once I think you kind of move away from the first batch of characters and realize you're going to meet new characters in every segment, um, that it becomes a harder film to grab hold of. Uh, and, and it just, just didn't work for me. I'll tell you, I kept thinking about this because I think there there's certainly some, and I don't mean a superhero way, but comic book feel science fiction elements to this. And what this reminded me of, what made me think of is like, this is if somebody wrote a really good script for a comic, Mm -hmm. but the parts of it where he describes what's going on in the panels got lost somehow and was handed off to a guy to direct who's never read a comic book before, who doesn't know that the visual part is part of telling the story. Because this is kind of styleless. There's And for a film with the plot that it has, that's quite frankly bizarre. There's no attempt to let the camera be part of the storytelling. It It's a fascinating idea. It's got a lot of fascinating ideas within it. It's got some really great script stuff going on in terms of dialogue and character moments. And it never feels organic. It feels more like a table read. Oh, yeah, I could I can see that. It is. That's an interesting observation. 
there is something kind of half baked to it. Um, I don't know. And I guess this has a cult following and there are a lot of people that are a big fan of this movie. Um, mm. But I wish I, I didn't know what it was about going in. Um, and, at, and I would say halfway through almost literally halfway through the movie, that was all that I sort of cared about it when it was sort of like, okay, none of this is of interest to me. Just get to whatever's going on because I, I'm, I was impatient for answers because I wasn't satisfied by the rest of the, the goings on. And you're right about style. You know, I just watched it's, I've done a lot of like armchair quarterbacking of the nines. I don't like to say, well, it should have done this and they should have done that. It should have been a short story and it should have blah, blah, blah. We just watched devs directed by Alex Garland. And it's like, could you imagine like the nines in the hands of Alex Garland? You have a completely different film, like oh, yeah. the same script, but just presented in a way where the, where the direction and the visuals match the things that the story is trying to execute. Yeah. You're right about yes. that. Um, yeah. Anyways, yeah. but you know, that's the movie exists as it exists and as it exists, it, it ain't my thing. Yeah. Uh, this is, Mill Creek putting this out. So there's no bonus features. I am glad I saw it. It is a really fascinating idea for a movie. I think the actors are good in it. It's a shame that this writer decided to direct this himself because as obviously he proved to himself by never directing anything again, that's just not his wheelhouse. And this script almost is thrown away by the lack of ability he has to do much more than workmanlike job at directing it. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 the, I hate it because the, there's a, so much to like here. And yet here we are. Will people say the same thing someday about Blumhouse's Fantasy Island? The uh, last film I'm reviewing with John Golson this week or simply Fantasy Island. It, so far, it seems like any of the films that say Blumhouse's on certain releases of of the Blumhouse release stuff are not great. <laughs> and certainly anything they've done with director Jeff Wadlow, uh, I'm thinking of Truth or Dare, which is absolutely atrocious and i can't believe they even released the fucking thing this is better than truth or dare i feel like i feel like when they do that when they put the blumhouse front and center and they say blumhouse presents or blumhouse's whatever that it's a it's a naked play for uh uh fright nights or whatever they call it halloween uh, horror nights at universal studios <laughs> i feel like it's designed explicitly for that and even fantasy island is like okay they have characters that can be in the park they have the big muscle doctor they have the guys in the crazy masks with the guns like there's stuff that they can do if they want to do Blumhouse's Fantasy Island as one of the park attractions. But I just feel like some of these movies are, are designed are designed in part to further the brand through amusement park attractions. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but that is definitely an interesting point, sir. Uh, uh, did you watch I, Fantasy I, Island? Like, religiously. Okay. So yeah, I watched that my whatever night it was. I want to say it was Sunday. I can't remember. It was Love Boat. And then Fantasy Island. So we did not miss those shows. We have some younger listeners, I know. And this Fantasy Island was um, was a show, and the movie's the same, so I'm synopsizing the show and the movie. It's basically you have this, uh, this resort island where your deepest, darkest fantasies come true. And in every episode of the TV show, a group of people arrive. They're presented with their fantasies, and their fantasies teach them valuable lessons and make them become uh, 
better, better people. people. And, Although sometimes and, there'll be the the light comic ones mm-hmm. where it's like literally that guy had his fantasy and it was kind of cute and funny and nothing went wrong yeah. and because he deserved it he's a good guy and he's not in the episode as much as the other episode the uh, other people often. I was <laughs> honestly shocked at how much this movie kind of captured the general vibe of a fantasy of a for better or worse like in all the worst ways and all the good ways i thought it actually did a pretty good job of being like some random episode of fantasy island other than other than some of the lore it tries to introduce some like lore and explain the island and all that kind of stuff that whatever but i I was really shocked at how much this reminded me of the tv show I mean, Michael Pena is playing Mr. Rourke here, a role originally played by Ricardo Montalban. He's or... n- yeah, he's no, he's no Mr. Rourke. No, he is not. And I like Michael Pena. That's not the diss on him, but yeah. he even seems wildly disinterested yeah. to be in this film. Like, he does not have the... He says, smiles, everyone smiles. Did he ever smile in this movie? Because I don't think he did. There's like a uh. campy... There's It's like gravitas and camp at the same time that Montalban has that he doesn't bring either one. He has neither the camp nor the gravitas. He's there to read his lines, get his paycheck, and go back to his trailer. <laughs> exactly. So he has the people come to the island. Maggie Q plays Gwen, who is a businesswoman who is there where because she spent the last seven years regretting having turned down a marriage proposal, and her fantasy is what if she had accepted it. Lucy Hale plays Melanie, who her whole life was ruined since high school by her female bully in high school, and she her revenge is to take her, her revenge. Her fantasy is to take revenge on her. Uh, Austin Stowell plays Patrick, who's a former police officer who feels like he made some big mistakes in his life and wishes he had joined the military and wished he could have enlisted in a war when he had the chance to honor his late father, who was a war hero. Uh, And Jimmy Yang and uh, Ryan Hansen, both of which are sort of playing roles just like roles they've played on various television shows, especially Ryan Hansen, who's best known for playing uh, Dick Casablancas on Veronica Mars, the sort of party boy. They're like best friend brothers who are there to have a fantasy of what it would be like to just have it all, like models who want to fuck you and great party house and all that. They're the the shallow ones, if you will. Uh, There's a bunch of other characters floating around in this thing, including people who are involved in their fantasies. And then everything is not as it seems. And I think one of the biggest mistakes and also the only reason this works at the same time is that all the fantasies end up tying together in a weird sort of way like there isn't an underlying principle here like a oh it's got to be a twist well there's a twist that's something that would not have happened on the show for yeah. the record partially because the show established strongly that mr rourke was a member of the greek pantheon of gods and was never a human being i'm sorry blumhouse's fantasy island you got it wrong so i don't know I if know. I, I don't remember that episode Oh, it came late in the series where it established there's one where he like there was a characters involved in a fantasy and she was like a Medusa, I think. I can't mm-hmm. remember. Maybe she was a mermaid. There was something with mermaids at one point too, but there were multiple episodes that established like he's a god. And he does this to I don't know, because he's altruistic. <laughs> Wants to make up for being a dick in the past. I they get into who Michael Pena, who Mr. Work actually is, and it's kind of disappointing. And it it ends on a sort of like, oh, this whole thing is a prequel to the show. That's super lame. I don't know, man. I just, the more I thought about this, the more I go, it's not that this is terrible in and of itself. There's just no way to turn Fantasy Island into a movie. I just don't think it can be done. I mean, the show is dorky, but it fits the television episodic format. 
I don't know if there's a way you can tell it in a single one and done movie that is not going to be terrible. Yeah, I had very, very low expectations, and this film cleared that bar while also not being a movie I could say that I really liked. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it also, it's I think it long. feels it's long and it feels dated. And it feels dated not because it reminded me of the show Fantasy Island. I mean, that was a, that was a plus. If the, if your movie's called Fantasy Island and it reminds me of Fantasy Island, then you okay, you've you've hit at least some kind of a base level. But <laughs> the uh, the other stuff is kind of like there's a little bit of like torture porny stuff. There's a little bit of like yo bro, let's get laid stuff that smacks yeah. of and and there's garish oversaturation the way that it's shot that reminded me of movies that were made in the early 2000s. And I've never seen I, <laughs> I've never seen a movie now that makes me go, oh, this feels like this came out in 2005. Like this, yeah. it, there's stuff about the world of it that feels very 2005. And I don't think that I, <laughs> it's funny because that's now going back 15 years ago, you know, and it's like, we're, you know, it's, it's something you can aesthetically see. You can look at Fantasy Island and go, "This, this is not of now. This is this. We're <laughs> we're over torture porn. We're over this sort of like um, spring break weekend bare boobs at the poolside, where everybody yeah. has bright orange skin and the sky is the color of a Slurpee." It's like, like, are you are you trying to make a commentary on these things we've stopped talking about entirely? Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, I. I, uh, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's fine. I said that about the other movie. It's not not fine. fine. It's not very good. It was way more watchable than I expected it to be because uh, my expectations are low. No offense to Ryan Turek, who was a producer on this film, who I'm friendly with. Um, but I mean, come on, it's, it's Fantasy Island is without that Blumhouse name, even that's a really hard sell in the year 2020. And, um, I don't know why they didn't stick by the courage of their convictions because they sold this movie as a Blumhouse horror twist on Fantasy Island. And it's not. It dances with the idea a little bit, but no more than the show ever did. Yeah, it's like the show. Nobody gives a shit if you're loyal to Fantasy Island. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Fucking go for it. Make a straight up like, oh, you think it's going to be like Fantasy Island and then holy shit, it's a fucking horror movie. No. It's not that. It is actually a Fantasy Island episode mm-hmm. and a really lame one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just... No, you're right. It, it made me kind of mad. There's lots of throwaway characters. Like Michael Rooker is in there playing this really intense private investigator who's been sent to investigate Fantasy Island, but then like got caught. But now he's just wandering around the island looking like a crazy guy trying to help other people who are on the island and let them know what the true nature of the island is. And his whole character comes to nothing. It's There's no point of him even being there. There's lots of throwaway stuff like that in here. It's just... It's a mess, but I'll hand it to the the writers of this. I assume it's writers, right? Yeah, three writers. I don't know you could have written a good version of this and try and make it like the show. I don't know if you could. Uh, you try. You definitely tried. I don't look at this and go, well, you just wrote that off and said, fuck it. You didn't do that. You gave it your best effort. I think you're you're banging your heads on a wall that is impenetrable. But, you know, I don't even want to say enough. It's nice try. You just shouldn't have tried. Maybe we'll get Blumhouse's love boat next. Oh God, is is uh is Julie the cruise director still alive? 
I wonder what she looks like now. Yeah. It's going to look something I'll look forward to. <laughs> Maybe in Blumhouse, that'll be their thing. They'll just start doing 70s TV shows. Dude, um, I would watch some of them, though, like Riptide or Hunter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know who this. I don't. I don't know who this. And this was a modest hit. I thought it went over like, I thought it. I thought it bombed, and it was not. Um, you know, like all Blumhouse stuff, it was it seems to be profitable. Um, yeah. Which you know, more power to them. But yeah, sure. It's funny, yeah. you know. You see the pedigree on the film. It's like from the producers of Get Out on the cover of the film, and it's like this what? is like <laughs> so okay. so far removed from the artfulness of Get Out. <laughs> First off, a terrible cover. Like, the, uh, just one of those, like, we always go, why don't they make the covers of the Blu-rays look even faintly like a movie poster? Yeah. Well, this one is like, I mean, they went to an intern to Photoshop this one together. And it literally says, from producer of Get Out and Halloween, which is technically grammatically correct, but it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> you know, it sounds like you accidentally got hold of the, like, this Mexican flea market fantasy Island knockoff film that is, looks like it's supposed to be fantasy Island, but it is in fact not. I don't know. <laughs> There's uh, not much in the way of extra features here. There's deleted scenes. Uh, this has an unrated and theatrical version. Of the I movie saw the because... unrated. I'm assuming the unrated had, had boobs. A few, yeah, a few more boobs. Right. That's I, I always put the unrated unless I've specifically heard. Oh, for God's sakes, don't watch the unrated. It's terrible. I will always watch the unrated, uh, which presumes director's cut, but without the pretension of saying director's cut on it. Uh, the, there's a cast commentary and director uh, with Jeff Wadlow uh, on, on the unrated version, and that's it. There's. I'm almost curious to listen to that. <laughs> you know? I mean, is there a point that you go, wow, literally, despite the fact we made money, everyone fucking hated this film. Won't we sell more copies if we shit all over it? Possibly. <laughs> it works for Joel Schumacher. I know, right? He did a famously on his Batman and Robin commentary. Anyway, that is it for my digital noise with John. However, because of the nature of this, I had to cram in a few titles that I knew Aaron had bought the digital downloads of anyway. And I was like, you you, you saw that, right? You, you got that movie because they sent this to me. He's like, yeah, yeah, I bought that. Okay, great. We're going we're gonna to review that. So I'm going to talk. First off, I know you'll be grateful that I did not ask you to watch Justice League Dark Apocalypse War. And you know how you're always like, I mixed on the DC animated universe. You would have hated this one. Oh, really? I so Red Sun was that anomaly. I don't. I yeah. I think it just depends how much they look like anime. If they yeah, well, I think yeah. that's where I, what I've discovered. If they look like anime, I don't like them. If they look like the old uh, Justice League show, I probably do. This is the first one of the ones I've seen that feels like if Zack Snyder suddenly took over the animated department, what their films would be like. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but we'll I'll talk about that in the review, and then we're talking about Sonic the Hedgehog, which uh, we disagree strongly about, Aaron and I, about how we felt about that movie. That should be an interesting discussion, as well as, and maybe Emma? I don't know. I haven't found out if he's watched it yet. I'm watching it right now, which is one of the films I've been anticipating all year. But that being said, John, drumroll please, what is your pick of the week? Uh, my pick of the week is... My pick of the week is Bamboozled, although it's really close with Sarah Noir. Um, I think I think you can't go wrong with either one. I think 
Sarah Noir's less challenging, but I think if I were going to own anything, it would probably be bamboozled. I think it's a uh, a vital piece of Spike Lee's filmography and a film that still maintains its impact in here 20 years after release. So why would you say bamboozled rather than the Grand Budapest Hotel then? Um, probably because there are good versions of that that exist, whereas this is like a, um, a must-have version of Bamboozled. So okay. there, there's already Blu-rays of Grand Budapest out there. And, and so to me, um, the, the wealth of the Criterion edition uh, for Bamboozled outweighs the one for Grand Budapest. Man, for once, I'm going to have to disagree with you this week. Uh, I, I find Bamboozled not an essential own, although maybe an essential watch if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's a very interesting film that I don't know if I'm ever going to get around to watching again, quite frankly, because I think it's a mixed bag of a movie. I would probably go with Siri Noir before. I mean, my pick for just me would be Better Days, but we might have to split the difference and say Siri Noir. Mm. Noir. Is that fair? I can agree to that. All right, fair enough. Well, thank you, John. And now here is Aaron. <laughs> because I know that John Golson is not the world's biggest fan of the DC animated universe films, like generally speaking. And this one already, which is Justice League Dark, Apocalypse, Apocalypse War. War. <laughs> I want to be clear, the space is in the right place there. Uh, was already getting some pretty negative reviews from fans of comics. So I was like, yeah, I don't want to subject him to that. But I know Aaron went ahead and bought this already. So I'm like, Aaron, you bought this, right? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> I, I did. I did. And, and, and it's going to be interesting because I uh, mostly disagree with almost all the negative reviews I've read until I don't. And then I really, really agree with them. So... <laughs> So this is weirdly the tie up to, I don't know exactly the number of films. Like there should, there was never any system in the DC animated universe films to say, these are in continuation. These are not. I looked, it, it's technically considered to be 15. Yes. But yeah. even though there's like 39 or something. Yeah. And there's <laughs> a lot before. And then even during they had like Gotham by Gaslight and Superman yeah. Red Sun that are kind of not really in continuity. Well, those are the Elseworld ones. But even yeah. then, there's a few that I think are not considered to be in continuity that are not Elseworlds. So it's very confusing. Yeah, just just enjoy. Or just go. Yeah, th this is supposed to be the tie-up to all those <laughs> unmarked ones that you're supposed to figure out are in continuity. And basically, it's Superman going to the Justice League and new members of Justice League Dark who got their, their, their solo movie a couple releases ago going, look. Darkseed is a dick. Uh, I'm tired of his shit. Uh, I'm going to do something very un-Superman-y and say, oh let's God. just go kill him. Let's murder Darkseed. Which, yeah. right off the bat, I was like, uh, what? Yeah, me too. That, that's <laughs> not... Now, I don't care what would be going on. Superman would only do that, make that decision in the crisis of the moment where there was, like, literally there was no other choice left. Like, like he was about to die or kill the guy. You could have had almost any other character deliver that. And then Superman is, is the Flash character going, do you realize the implications of what you're doing here? Like, I'm right. not going to say, no, sure, I'll come help. But 
this is going to kill millions. He realized that. Like, that should have been the Superman character. So, basically, the naysayers are totally right. The film doesn't even show us what happens until, except in flashbacks here and there, as they lost. And they lost badly. Because Darkseid killed everyone, pretty much, enslaved those he didn't, or neutered those that he didn't enslave either, and took over the Earth. And everybody is, everything is terrible. It's basically the uh, Days of Future Past, just the future parts. You know, like, it's like, no, everyone's dead, dying, or miserable. Except with absolutely no nuance of any kind. Like, Days of Future Past was relating specifically to sort of political stuff and the things that were happening. This is not. This is, like, really lame, bland, apocalypse stuff. (laughs) And so somehow John Constantine is the main character here because they're like, oh, well, we need to find Damian Wayne. Because Clark Kent's still alive, but he's been neutered as, a, I guess, a joke by by Darkseed with kryptonite in his blood. So he no longer has any powers. He's like, oh, we need you to find Damian Wayne because Batman is the number one slave to... Uh, I keep wanting to say Thanos, goddammit, to Apocalypse. <laughs> and, we, and our best hope is that if we can do all this shit to get you there, that maybe... Like, he'll remember you? Look, it's a really bad plan, and even they admit it. And bunches of shit goes wrong. And, like, every DC character is in this. And they all die horribly over the length of this. Like, they die in a way that is... Almost feels sadistic. Oh, that's because it's the Justice League Dark. And the Justice League Darks are, like, we're R-rated to the extreme. It's like Suicide Squad. But they forgot that... Just because you're R-rated and you want to be extreme doesn't mean you cannot tell a good story. And so that's kind of where I get to. Because so I'm going to try not to talk about this, even though 90% of my problems uh, are in like the last four minutes of this, really. But so this is the wrap up to the New 52 kind of DC animated universe. And on its own, were this like a random side story, I could see this working as an Elseworlds, or I could even see this working where their plan was a little bit different. But instead, what ends up happening is we just kind of watch them lose over and over and over and over again until they finally really lose. And then the writers and the characters just kind of hand wave everything away. Like, yeah, this would have been 10 times better if their whole mission was to wipe the universe and start over, like do the rewinds a la uh, Endgame, like something along those lines instead of just, no, we're, we're going to keep trying to stop Darkseid because that's what we do. And then, oh, well. This is clearly a response to Infinity War and Endgame, like clearly. Only it's done without any sense of any of these characters being real people or have humanity about them at all, the way those films did. It feels rushed, and it is rushed. You can tell. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, Constantine gets some good character work. Like, I actually enjoyed his bits, uh, and Raven as well. And I, I kind of enjoyed what they did with Superman when he was not wearing the suit. Uh, uh-huh. Like, anytime Superman's wearing the suit, I was rolling my eyes and getting angry at the characterization. Let's not forget the demon who has no fucks left to give and is just, like, drunk as shit the whole time. I, I really liked the demon. Yeah, but he's, <laughs> he's a one-note joke. He doesn't he contribute to the story at all. He's just like, oh, look, there's a funny. Right. 
That's true. No, and in fact, most of this is really kind of one note joke stuff. Even like the whole Suicide Squad, they've made into like yeah, you know, the bad guys are good guys. Like there's a one note joke that's funny with King Shark is basically like Groot and can only say his one line. And that's kind of funny and it pays off with a little bit of a punchline at the end. But it does it so many times. There's a point like, we get it. Okay, yeah. come on. Yeah, I, 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 the payoff for that was good, but it was nowhere near worth the buildup. And like, honestly, just I, I can't emphasize enough how much of a nut punch the, the true ending of this movie is to a point that like I, I've mostly had fun with the new 52 universe. Like I, I have problems with it. It's way mm-hmm. too action heavy way too dark but it's still just kind of fun mindless action animated movies this wrap-up is so egregiously offensive to everything that has come before that i don't know that i'll be keeping or rewatching any of the previous movies except for the elseworlds like this drove me crazy i did find myself looking to see if this was written by Zack snyder I, I, I had to check because it felt like it. It felt like that sort of disrespect for the characters. The like, oh, people just want to see them die horribly and them do really evil shit, which is Zack Snyder's whole thing. And I'm like, no, you don't know anything about comics fans. That's not what we want to see. In fact, I think the people who like his movies the best and will like this are people who don't really give a shit about these comics or these characters who are just like, yeah, it was funny watching these guys all die. And okay. So- no, no, I, I don't even agree with that because I kind of enjoy more of Zack Snyder's movies than I don't, even though I think he's a terrible writer. Um, well, we've heard but, enough but, from Aaron. But, but so even, even that, <laughs> I still really got pissed at this several times. And like, uh-huh. like every time I was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. And that's an interesting bit. They would just like shit all over something and it'd be like, oh, OK, well, that was terrible. I mean, the one thing I'll hand it is it's not boring, at least. It no. constantly is shit going on. And it's like I said, it's pretty much mur- uh, murder porn for, for DC super characters. Because if you've always wanted to see them die horribly, great. You get to see pretty much all of them die horribly one at a time in very graphic ways here. So good on if that on you if that's what you're looking for. If you're into really bleak shit, go ahead and watch this. You'll get some fun out of it. Just turn it off 45 seconds before the credits roll. Yeah, I the one thing I'll say there's a bit with Trigon that it's always which is the demon that infests Raven, her father, who she's constantly trying to hold back. Even though you could tell from the beginning where this was going to go, I kind of like where it went. I was like, okay, that was kind of fun to watch that play out. Raven was very well done in this. I think. I think yeah. she was the best character aside from Constantine. Yeah, uh, but it's just there's I could have told you the the ending of this. The moment it started, like literally five minutes into this, I was like, I'll tell you right now how this is going to end, because I know how DC Comics is and I know the the bullshit they always fall back on every time they write themselves into a corner. And that's exactly what they did. Now, what we need to do as we move forward into whatever the hell this next phase is going to be, DC Comics, from the bottom of my heart, please stop using Darkseid. Hmm. Yep. Agreed. Yeah, find something else because everyone's just going, isn't he a lot like Thanos? And I'm pretty sure Darkseid came first in terms of the characters that were written. But, and this is just my opinion, Darkseid's never been as interesting a character as Thanos is, and certainly not recently. And the point is, Marvel's kind of got got the, the Thanos-ish character, the market 
cornered right now. You've got a lot of great villains in your history, DC, including a lot of super god-level-powered villains. Pick somebody else. Yeah, it's, it's just, I'm tired of seeing him be the enemy of the Justice League. I need new enemy. He's been done, like, six or seven times in the New 52 animated universe, like, tertiarily. He's been the main villain in um, Young... Not Young Avengers. Young Justice. Uh, mm-hmm. He's just... He keeps showing up because they know he's god-level. Just anyone else, please, pick someone new to be the main foil of the Justice League for a few years in the films. I will say the weirdest thing about this release, though... Okay, first off, I get it. Like, Warner Brothers has been very, like, we're not sending out hard copies of discs, but we'll send you digital codes. So even though the digital codes for sale to fans had already been put out where you could buy them at this point, they sent me this shitty link, like, that was below DVD quality with running time and information, digital information on the screen, taking up over 25% of the screen. Not even kidding. It was like how little they gave a shit. And then as I even asked him, I said, hey, is there usually even in the past, you've just sent me the digital code, which comes with the bonus features. This has nothing. Are there bonus features? No response. Like none. And guess what? As near as I can tell, unless everyone else in Criticsville was treated exactly the same. I don't think there are any extra features on this. None that I can find. You paid for the digital code, which normally those things come with bonus features at the end, post-credits. You can just keep going. And you said there were none, right? Well, I'll, I'll have to go back and check. I I got so aggravated by the end that I just turned it off and walked away. Kind of okay, so, so. M- maybe, the, maybe there was on digital copy. But I'm looking at multiple reviews and not one of them mentions bonus features, which is really strange because one of the things I most look forward to with these is the bonus features to see what they do. And this being the supposedly the, the final chapter in this long line of films having none, I think this just double underlines how much they just kind of shit this one out. Yeah, I, I can... I feel like they're really excited to move on beyond this whole thing. And they were like, let's just go, let's move it, let's get it done with. Hopefully people won't care anymore. And we can just kind of move on to the stuff that we're good at now. Maybe, Agreed. Hopefully. Of course, they're just making another Superman movie, so... Weird, weirdly, I know it's only five critics counted, but this is 100% of Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know who those critics are, but I, I, I really, I, and I hadn't heard of any of them, so I, I don't know what's going on there. But I can tell you, I don't know a single person I've seen online, which are many who've watched this, say much in the way of positive things about this. Uh, we are far from the minority on this one, no matter what their Wikipedia page or Rotten Tomato page, Rotten Tomatoes page says. This just isn't very good. Uh, you know, everyone kept telling me, including you, hey, you know what? I know it sounds surprising, but you know that Sonic the Hedgehog film that's in movies based on the old Sega video game that I guess most of you guys grew up playing? You know that movie? And you know how video game movies are pretty much never good? Well, this one's pretty good. And I'm like, you know, I like James Marsden. James Marsden is the guy who often appears in movies that look terrible and end up being pretty good. And you're like, who is your agent, James Marsden? He does that a lot. And then... And then Jim Carrey, who hasn't had a hit in a very long time. But people are saying, wow, this is like going back and watching the old Jim Carrey. I liked to some extent, the old Jim Carrey. Uh, I wish the old Jim Carrey they were talking about was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Jim Carrey, but I suspect we won't see that Jim Carrey again. But that being said, Sonic the Hedgehog, I'm all, I'm like, okay, sure. I'll give this a shot. What is wrong with you people? (laughs) We know how to feel the joy of a child. 
No! This is terrible! This is awful! Why do you like this movie? From an objective standpoint, I can't disagree with a lot of, like, what you've mentioned about this. Like, the the movie unquestionably has flaws. It is a giant consumerist thing. It's so obvious from 30 seconds in, if you know even anything about Sonic, everything that's going to happen. And quite frankly, I, I barely know anything. I've, like played an hour of sonic of my entire life but um Hmm. like it doesn't matter though it has this it has this charm so even though it continuously makes the same jokes you know it's going to make it it works and it's just kind of fun i i don't get it man because like i said i'm like i played the first two sonic games and that was really about it i mean i think i dabbled here and there but that was so long ago i certainly wouldn't consider myself a huge sonic fan or anything but i enjoyed them for what it was worth this movie one of the appeals i keep hearing from people is that if you're a huge sonic fan it's just non-stop sonic easter eggs like hidden throughout every frame of this fucking film i recognize the chili dog (laughs) i i did not See, I didn't know that till after the fact. That, but there's tons of it in here. Uh, that's fine as long as it's not getting in the way of the storytelling. Where you go, what does that mean? Then I don't have a problem with it, and I think that's a, the way to do something like that. Being said, like I said, I knew very little. Yet there was not a single thing that happened in this whole movie that I couldn't tell you that was exactly where it was going at any point. There's not a single line of inspired dialogue oh, or comedy. So Throughout the whole thing, every single joke in here is stolen. Every joke, every action twist, everything is stolen from a better movie. Or in some cases, worse movies, but still, like in the terms of... So, did they just steal a bunch of stuff from the Flash script that's never going to get made and put it in here? (laughs) They stole from a lot of different things. You're not wrong. Like, they stole the Quicksilver sequence whole hog. And to a point that that this movie almost feels like a satire of superhero movies at times. But, like, I I can't disagree with you more on Jim Carrey. I thought he was a joy to watch. And and that he is such an unrepentant asshole from the second one. But... He somehow, I thought, made him to be a very charismatic and fun individual. I think James Marsden has made a career off of playing this exact same character, which is the plucky, mm. good-hearted guy who can't help but do, but help the cute little animal. Yeah. I think he's been in four of these, maybe, at least two or three. Uh, and, and, like, I like him in it, and I like that that they are able to have characters going through kind of what is an interesting issue, even if I don't agree with where they end up, but it still is this fun road movie. And the action is actually, while it's super derivative is well done. Like there, Mm. there is a sequence where they're chased by a drone and the drones become progressively like they start out as this giant bus sized tank and they destroy that. And then it's a motorcycle and they destroy that. And then it's a wheel and like it continues on as these drones get smaller and smaller and smaller. Like it's this Russian nesting doll of an action sequence. And I thought it was really clever and inventive and I laughed my whole way through it. Isn't that actually in the game? I thought that was in the game. I don't know. I, I, again, I don't know. I either. played like Sonic 2 a little bit, the one with Tails. Yeah. Yeah, Sonic 2. Um, Sonic and Tails? But, like, I don't know. It worked for me, but I'll, I'll admit too that I'm also coming at this from the point of view of a dad. Like, uh, my son watched this before I did uh, to a point that when I watched it with him for his second time, I was a little intimidated by some of what was in there for his age. 
But sure. like watching from that point of view, like this was great. It was fluffy. It was dumb. There's a there's a uh, uh, an Olive Garden gag that is Josie and the Pussycats level of product placement, which that's how I took it, and I kind of loved it for that. I that just annoyed me so much. It was like, look, man, if you have product placement in your movie, it shouldn't literally be turning to the camera and going, ah, isn't it funny? We took money for this product placement, which we actually did. No, it's not funny or clever. It's not meta. It's been done like 50 times already. Exactly like that. It's just lame. (laughs) Like, I I just don't know what to say. Like, I I can't. I, I both get what you're saying. You're not wrong. This movie is rough, but it's the perfect movie for now, I think. Like, it's just so <laughs> light and fluffy and just fun. I think this is one of the few one of the few films I'm going to acknowledge that both an age divide and not having kids plays into me despising this movie as deeply as I, I do. Agree. Because I really did despise this movie. You know, I, I hated it, like, so much. And, and people arguing with me, Ben Schwartz is so great, who voices Sonic. I'm like... Where exactly do you like Ben Schwartz from? People are like, well, I mean, he voices Dewey in DuckTales. I'm like, he voices one of the three nephews in DuckTales and he can do no wrong? You know what's funny is that Ben Schwartz, uh, he and the actor actress who plays his sister in um, Parks and Rec, it has taken me years, like literally years to have any respect for them as human beings whatsoever because their characters were so loathsome on that show. Like, I still instantly see him and go, man, I hate you. Wait, no, no. Like, you're a cool guy. It's okay. You're not your character. That's my, right now, like, my current fave sitcom. I'm rewatching it. I just love it so much. He is the only character I cannot deal with on that show. Yeah. Where I'm like, I, if there was an option and just, like, just cut out every scene with John Ralphio, skip over it, I would. Agreed. Because he's not funny. He's not a funny character. He's just annoying. It serves no purpose. Don't care for but it. But nevertheless, we're here to talk about Sonic. And, and I think you're right. If you if you have kids or if you have a familiarity with the character, I think you're probably going to like Sonic. If you're... I think as well, though, because like you grew up as a kid with Jim Carrey. I did. Like all the wacky Jim Carrey. That was formative comedy stuff for you. For me, I was an adult. I remember seeing Ace Ventura and going... Really? This is what passes for comedy? That's not funny. And and the whole world loving it. So I never had that loving, super wacky Jim Carrey thing with the possible exception of The Mask. You know, know? and it's nice to, well, you're right. You you hit the nail on the head with him. It's nice to see him doing this shtick when the movie itself isn't like horribly offensive and racist and transphobic because Jesus Christ, (laughs) do not go back and watch the Ace Ventura movies now. They, they are rough. (laughs) <laughs> but um, but you're right. Like I have a lot of affection for a lot of the people in this uh, movie, even if I, I can't say the movie is that special. If just go watch it if you want something fluffy and fun, and you don't want to think about the hellscape we're living in right now. <laughs> I, I mean, I had the opposite reaction where this just made me think of the hellscape we're living in right now. Where I was like, I was like, this is, this is when I look around at everyone going like, oh, it'll be fine. We'll just go out. I'm like, then look at Sonic the Hedgehog. I'm going, how did we not know? I was like, this is how you get Sonic, people. This is how you get Sonic. Look what you've done. <laughs> anyway, so this is on Blu-ray and 4K as of uh, May, May 19th, which should be after this comes out. 
Uh, there's a few extra features here. There is uh, 14 minutes of deleted scenes with an introduction by Jeff Fowler. There's two minutes of Around the World in 80 Seconds, uh, which is... I don't know what it's supposed to be. It's like sketches of world landmarks for kids. Uh, who knows? I, I don't know what the hell that was supposed to be. There's two minutes of like endless mugging for the camera that they call bloopers, but it's, it, you know, whatever it's linorama stuff, which is, which is rarely good when it's put together in this sort of way. There's a four minute whiz Khalifa, little Yachty, try dollar sign. Are these real people? And yep. Sueco the child for a <laughs> uh, music video for speed me up. There's four minutes of for the love of Sonic, which is the actors and greater director talking about their loving the video games. Uh, four minutes on building Robotnik, which is Jim Carrey's character. There's six minutes of the blue blur uh, origins of Sonic. This is the only one I watched all the way through, hoping it was going to get better. It did not. Uh, which is basically just to look at the history of the video game, but whatever. Uh, three minutes of On the Set with uh, Ben Schwartz basically dealing with tracking dots on his face, if you will. Uh, yeah, this is just not for me. Uh, obviously, if you have kids or you're 10, 15 years younger than me, this might mean something different to you. If you're my age, like 50, I doubt this is going to be for you. No. I doubt this is going to be something you're going to find very appealing. Not at all. Can, can I call out to with everything that happened with this movie? I think it's a crime that they don't have a decent special feature on here really going into detail about both the original release of the trailer, the fan reaction, what happened behind the scenes when that was going down, and going into like how they went in to fix that and where they were. Because that is a legitimately interesting aspect of Hollywood and modern day movie making that we don't get to see. It would have been nice to get some insight into that. Fair enough. Well, next up, we're going to a film for grown-ups. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, fair warning. Uh, what we are about to talk about is a genre that I do not get. Uh, they do not appeal to me in any way, shape, or form. So, How would you describe it as a as genre? I'm just uh, curious because I've heard many people call this sort of thing many different things. I, I will. Uh, I was having to explain it to my son who watched part of it before turning to me and going, Daddy, I want you to put something else on, please. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I called this a drawing room comedy, which is about a bunch of people who go and sit in a room and have conversations about things that they they think they feel but can't admit. And humorously enough, they don't do any drawing in the actual drawing room. <laughs> well, that's, you know, yeah. <laughs> but we are talking about Emma. <laughs> we are talking about Emma. I was going to say Clueless Zero. <laughs> it's the prequel. A previous generation. <laughs> Which, like, I, I don't even know how to describe what this is about because I... like, I mean, It's weirdly complicated, right? the plot of Emma. <laughs> I mean, but these drawing room things usually are... I am the other way. I tend to love this sort of stuff, both the drawing room dramas and a comedies. I love Jane Austen. Uh, big fan of her stuff. Big fan of Pride and Prejudice. Uh, big, big fan of Emma. Big fan of Clueless, for that matter, which is a modern day remake of Emma, which has been made. I do like Clueless. <laughs> <laughs> so you require a mall for I, I think Emma's so. well, to work you know for what you it as is. a store. Because there is actually a lot I want to talk about that this movie did right. But like, I, I think what holds me at arm's length is the fact that it's a bunch of people who if only they would turn and actually have a conversation about what they're really thinking and feeling all of this wouldn't happen but because society's rules are so strict they can't and so it's just a bunch of people you keep going like just just say the thing and then it's cool you're good 
See, that doesn't bother me because we understand the setting. Yeah, I, I get like, that. Like, in movies where it's, like, modern day and people do that, like, sitcoms and stuff, that drives me up the fucking oh, wall. Same here. Where you're like, no one would do that. They would just go, this is stupid. I'm going to go ahead and, and say something. With this, you're like, okay, it literally is, like, people would judge you if you said something, no matter how outrageous it is that you're not allowed to say something. So, that doesn't bother me. And you've got Bill Nye of, in here, of course, which legally has to be in every single one of these, I believe. <laughs> Who is getting kind of old. There was a pe- like, I knew it was Bill Nye, and then I went, wait, no, he doesn't look right. He looks older than I thought. Maybe that's someone new. Yeah. But no. No, it's, it's Nye. He's, he's, he's a, a lovable but, but curmudgeonish old father of Anna Taylor-Joy's titular character of Emma. By the way, big fan of Anya T- Taylor-Joy. I think she's terrific. I've liked her in pretty much everything I've seen her in ever since she launched in The Witch. Uh, by the way, seek out her movie with Olivia Cook Thoroughbreds, if you haven't seen it. I, I think it's on Shudder. It might even be on Netflix, but really, really good little movie. And uh, so this particular one, Regency Era England, she is meddlesome, Anya is, Emma is. She is already hooked up her governess with a successful husband. And now she's like, ooh, I love meddling in people's love lives and decides this is going to be her thing. She's not interested in her own love life. I mean, she is, but she said she's not. So she's going to manipulate other people into marriage. And she's got a new assistant uh, played by Mia Goth, a young actress I've, I'm have i still a little baffled as to the appeal of. But nonetheless, <laughs> uh, maybe it's just your name that throws me off. I'm like, that's not your real name, is it? <laughs> anyway. Goth enough for you? <laughs> no, right? <laughs> Should have come in with heavy black eyeliner and, you know start singing a Susie and the Banshees song and they'd be like, Oh my God, an alien. No, uh, it's a, this has just shit ton of characters in it. And it's about, like I said, a- Emma trying to manipulate everybody to like, uh, get a largely for Mia Goss character, a, a good match for her, but being manipulative to the point where she's causing actual damage to other people's lives. And eventually it starts getting called out and judged for it and starts realizing, you know, maybe I should just worry about my own shit. <laughs> And stop meddling with other people. That was about when I started to get really interested in the story, too. Because <laughs> she's, like, I mean, she's a teenager, basically. Yeah. She's, like, what, supposed to be, like, 18 or 19 or something in the film? Yeah, and she's a very, I mean, she is Alicia Silverstone and Clueless, yep. you know? I mean, you totally see the connection. She's kind of shallow, but not, she's shallow, but not stupid, you know? And it's about her learning to become less shallow, essentially. <laughs> and, of course, eventually falling in love with someone who is the, someone who she hadn't seriously considered in the beginning because he's kind of family. Johnny Flynn, played by George Knightley, who is apparently a popular musician, but that's all I know about oh, him. Oh, okay. Sorry, George Knightley, played by Johnny Flynn. My apologies. Other way around. Yeah, I'm, you know, I like this sort of thing a lot. I found this was cute, the way that the director, Autumn DeWild, really knew how to direct these actors in a way to give it almost a near, it's not slapstick, but it has the way that people react and move around has almost a near slapstick feel to it. It's very, it has a great sense of momentum to it, but ultimately... This is the type of thing that is going to frustrate you to some extent. And it's 124 minutes and it really is kind of a piece of fluff. And I'm like, no piece of fluff should ever be 124 minutes. Well, and I I do want to add to you saying about the director. That's what I wanted to call out. Like this is Autumn DeWilde's first feature film, at least per IMDb. And 
I think that he shoots this in a way that I haven't actually seen before. Uh, like, in particular, he frames the people, not the locations, and makes it a little bit more of a human story. And the choice of music works really well in this. Like, this was a movie that I spent the entire time, because, again, this is not my kind of story, going, oh my god, this is a technical marvel for this type of film. I was blown away by how well it looked and cut together. And the, yeah. that it has this kind of... Um, it's a very light, fluffy, bumpy feel to the score, which, again, kind of surprised me. I was not expecting that at all. Yeah. No, I mean, I think overall I like this film. It's not my favorite of this type of thing. I think it's got an excellent cast. Like I said, Miranda Hart is in this as well. Josh O'Connor, Callum Turner, Rupert Graves. Uh there's nothing to dislike per se, but I feel like if you're like Aaron and you're one of those people who's like, this normally isn't my type of thing, Emma is not going to be the one that convinces you. No, it will not. It, it, this is for people who already know that if it's a Jane Austen kind of movie, they're going to watch it because it's their cup of tea. You're going to love the hell out of this. If you're like me and you just roll your eyes at a, any kind of drawing room film, you might want to just keep walking. Yep. Uh, there is some deleted scenes here. There's a really actually delightful gag reel. And like I said, on the Sonic one, I'm like, that was just such a manipulative little over-edited gag reel. This is like hysterical because it's these people who genuinely are having fun on set for 10 minutes. And it's not like super slickly edited or anything. It's just edited enough to keep it to what's actually funny on there. And it's weird seeing people who are like talking in, you know, this, this clipped accents and being very serious suddenly break out. And at one point somebody goes, oh, fuckity tits. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm like, fuckity tits. That's my new expression. <laughs> okay, shit, I didn't get to see that. I need to track it down now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a, a couple behind the scenes type things uh, that are, you know, going to be more interesting to those who are really fascinated by how you make this sort of movie than not, but they're hardly essential. There's a feature commentary with the director, the screenwriter, and the director of photography. So, I mean, overall, it's a better collection of stuff than one would expect with this type of film, making a very solid release for someone who's very well-reviewed, but I'm not going to go so far as to say this is, like, essential for me, but I did enjoy watching it. Good, but... And that's it for this week's Digital Noise. Thanks to John Golson and Aaron Woodle for joining me as my hosts, as always. I know this one was extra long. Well, that's just the way it goes sometimes with Digital Noise. Also, the weird schedule, as mentioned at the beginning of this episode, of how like we, we they're sending them few and far between, and sometimes in little blasts of like four or five at once, and then nothing for like half a month. It's it's weird right now, as I'm sure you all know. Anyway, so the upshot is please click on those links on the page itself. That'll take you to the Amazon page where you can buy stuff from there. If you start from our links and buy anything, we get a kickback on it. Uh, on Amazon, that is, of course. So please do that. Please become a subscriber. Lots of extra stuff. Uh, this site is a lot of work. It is literally like two full-time jobs on top of each other and with the staff on top of that. So please become a subscriber. Help keeping this stuff going out there. All sorts of new shows planned in the works. There's a weekly video show now, too. If you haven't checked it out, that comes on our Facebook page every Sunday, generally speaking. Thanks for being a supporter of oneofus.net.